Book 2, Chapter 9 of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book 2, The Art Critic, 1842 to 1860. Chapter 9, The Political Economy of Art, 1857-1858 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith The humble work of the drawing classes at Great Ormond Street was teaching Ruskin even more than he taught his pupils. It was showing him how far his plans were practicable, how they should be modified, how they might be improved, and especially what more, besides drawing classes, was needed to realise his ideal. He was anxiously willing to cooperate with every movement, to join hands with any kind of man, to go anywhere, do anything that might promote the cause he had at heart. Already at the end of 1854 he had given three lectures, his second course, at the Architectural Museum, specially addressed to workmen in the decorative trades. His subjects were design and colour, and his illustrations were chiefly drawn from medieval illumination which he had long been studying. These were informal, quasi-private affairs, which nevertheless attracted notice owing to the celebrity of the speaker. It would have been even better if his addresses had been carefully prepared and authentically published, for a chance word here and there raised replies about matters of detail in which his critics thought they had gained a technical advantage, adding weight to his father's desire not to see him expose himself in this way. There were no more lectures until the beginning of 1857. On January the 23rd, 1857, he spoke before the Architectural Association upon the influence of imagination in architecture, repeating and amplifying what he had said at Edinburgh about the subordinate value of proportion and the importance of sculptured ornament based on natural forms. This, of course, would involve the creation of a class of stone carvers who could be trusted with the execution of such work. Once grant the value of it, and public demand would encourage the supply, and the workmen would raise themselves in the effort. A louder note was sounded in an address at the St. Martin's School of Art, Castle Street, Long Acre, April the 3rd, 1857, where, speaking after George Cruikshank, his old friend, practically his first master, and an enthusiastic philanthropist and temperance advocate, Ruskin gave his audience a wider view of art than they had known before. The kind of painting they wanted most in London was painting cheeks red with health. This was anticipating the standpoint of the Oxford lectures and showed how the inquiry was beginning to take a much broader aspect. Another work in a similar spirit, the North London School of Design, had been prosperously started by a circle of men under pre-Raphaelite influence and led by Thomas Seddon. He had given up historical and poetic painting for naturalistic landscape and had returned from the East with the most valuable studies completed, only to break down and die prematurely. His friends, among them Holman Hunt, were collecting money to buy from the widow his picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives to present it to the National Gallery as a memorial of him, and at a meeting for the purpose, Ruskin spoke warmly of his labours in the cause of the working classes. In the summer of 1857, the Art Treasures exhibition was held at Manchester, and Ruskin was invited to lecture. 
The theme he chose was the political economy of art. He had been studying political economy for some time back, but, as we saw from his letter to Carlyle, he had found no answer in the ordinary textbooks for the questions he tried to put. He wanted to know what Bentham and Ricardo and Mill, the great authorities, would advise him as to the best way of employing artists, of educating workmen, of elevating public taste, of regulating patronage. But these subjects were not in their programme. And so he put together his own thoughts into two lectures upon art considered as wealth. First, how to get it. Next, how to use it. There were very few points in these lectures that were not vigorously contested at the moment and conceded in the sequel in some form or other. The paternal function of government, the right of the state to interfere in matters beyond its traditional range, its duty with regard to education, all this was quite contrary to the prevailing habits of thought of the time, especially at Manchester, the headquarters of the laissez-faire school. But to Ruskin, who, curiously enough, had just been referring sarcastically to German philosophy, knowing it only at second hand, and unaware of Hegel's political work, to him this platonic conception of the state was the only possible one, as it is to most people nowadays. In the same way, his practical advice had been accepted, perhaps unwittingly, by our times. We do now understand the difficulties between artistic decoration and machine-made wares, we do now try to preserve ancient monuments and to use art as a means of education. And we are in a fair way, it seems, of lowering the price of modern pictures as he bids us to not more than £500 for an oil picture and £100 for a watercolour. After a visit to the Trevelyans at Wallington, he went with his parents to Scotland. For his mother, now beginning to grow old, wanted to revisit the scenes of her youth. They went to the highlands and as far north as the Bay of Cromarty, and then returned by way of the abbeys of the lowlands to look up Turner sites, as he had done in 1845, on the San Gothard. From the enjoyment of this holiday he was recalled to London by a letter from Mr. Warnham, saying that he could arrange the Turner drawings at the National Gallery. His first letter on the National Gallery in 1847 has been noticed. He had written again to the Times, December the 29th, 1852, pressing the same point, namely that if the pictures were put under glass, no cleaning nor restoring would be needed, and that the gallery ought not to be considered as a grand hall, decorated with pictures, but as a convenient museum, with a chronological sequence of the best works of all schools, every picture hung on the line and accompanied by studies for it, if procurable, and engravings from it. Now, in 1857, question was raised of removing the National Gallery from Trafalgar Square. The South Kensington Museum was being formed, and the whole business of arranging the national art treasures was gone into by a royal commission, consisting of Lord Broughton, in the chair, Dean Millman, Professor Faraday, Professor Cockrell, and George Richmond. Ruskin was examined before them on April the 6th and restated the opinions he had written to the Times, adding that he would like to see two national galleries, one of popular interest, containing such works as would catch the public eye and enlist the sympathy of the untaught, and another containing only the cream of the collections, in pictures, sculpture and the decorative crafts. 
arranged for purposes of study. This was suggested as an ideal. Of course, it would involve more outlay and less display than any parliamentary vote would sanction or party leader risk. Another question of importance was the disposal of the pictures and sketches which Turner had left to the nation. Ruskin was one of the executors under the will, but on finding that, though Turner's intention was plain, there were technical informalities which would make the administration anything but easy, he declined to act. It was not until 1856 that the litigation was concluded and Turner's pictures and sketches were handed to the trustees of the National Gallery. Ruskin, whose want of legal knowledge had made his services useless before, now felt that he could carry out the spirit of Turner's will by offering to arrange the sketches, which were in such a state of confusion that only some person with knowledge of the artist's habits of work and subjects could, so to speak, edit them, and the editor would need no ordinary skill, patience and judgment into the bargain. Meanwhile, for that winter, 1856-57, a preliminary exhibition was held of Turner's oil paintings, with a few watercolours at Marlborough House, then the headquarters of the Department of Science and Art, soon afterwards removed to South Kensington. Ruskin wrote a catalogue with analysis of Turner's periods of development and characteristics, which made the collection intelligible and interesting to curious sightseers. They showed their appreciation by taking up five editions in rapid succession. Just before lecturing at Manchester, he wrote again on the subject to the Times, and in September his friend R. N. Warnham, director of the National Gallery, in succession to Eastlake and Owens, wrote, as we saw, that he might arrange the sketches as he pleased. He returned from Scotland and set to work on October the 7th. It was strange employment for a man of his powers, almost as removed from the Epicurean Olympus of cultured ease popularly assigned to him as night school teaching and lecturing to workmen. But besides that it was the carrying out of Turner's wishes, he always had a certain love for experimenting in manual toil, and this was work in which his extreme neatness and deftness of hand was needed, no less than his knowledge and judgment. During the winter, for full six months, he and his two assistants worked all day and every day among the masses of precious rubbish that had been removed from Queen Anne Street to the National Gallery. Mr J. J. Ruskin wrote on February the 19th and 21st, 1852, I have just been through Turner's house with Griffith. His labour is more astonishing than his genius. There are 80,000 pounds of oil pictures done and undone, boxes half as big as your study table, filled with drawings and sketches. There are copies of Liber Studiorum to fill all your drawers and more, and house walls of proof plates in reams. They may go at one shilling each. Nothing since Pompeii so impressed me as the interior of Turner's house, the accumulated dust of forty years partially cleared off, daylight for the first time admitted by opening a window on the finest productions of art buried for forty years. The drawing-room has, it is reckoned, £25,000 worth of proofs and sketches and drawings and prints. It is amusing to hear dealers saying, there can be no Liber Studiorums, when I saw, neatly packed and well-labelled, as many bundles of Liber Studiorum as would fill your entire bookcase, and England and Wales proofs in packed and labelled bundles like reams of paper, as I told you, piled nearly to ceiling. 
the house must be dry as a bone the parcels were apparently quite uninjured the very large pictures were spotted but not much they stood leaning against another in the large low rooms some finished go to nation many unfinished not no frames two are given unconditional of gallery building very fine if and this is a condition placed beside claude the style much like the laying on in windmill lock in dealer's hands which now it is cleaned comes out a real beauty i believe turner loved it the will desires all to be framed and repaired and put into the best showing state as if he could not release his money to do this till he was dead the top of his gallery is one ruin of glass and patches of paper now only just made weatherproof i saw in turner's rooms geo Morlands and Wilsons and Claudes and portraits in various styles, all by Turner. He copied every man, was every man first, and took up his own style, casting all others away. It seems to me you may keep your money and revel for ever, and for nothing among Turner's works. Among the quantities so recklessly thrown aside for dust, damp, soot, mice and worms to destroy, some fifteen thousand Ruskin reckoned at first, nineteen thousand later on there were many fine drawings which had been used by the engravers and vast numbers of interesting and valuable studies in colour and in pencil four hundred of these were extricated from the chaos and with infinite pains cleaned flattened mounted dated and described and placed in sliding frames in cabinets devised by ruskin or else in swivel frames to let both sides of the paper be seen the first results of the work were shown in an exhibition at Marlborough House during the winter, for which he wrote another catalogue. Of the whole collection, he began a more complete account, which was too elaborate to be finished in that form. But in 1881, he published a catalogue of the drawings and sketches of J. M. W. Turner, R.A., at present exhibited in the National Gallery, so that his plan was practically fulfilled. During 1858, Ruskin continued to lecture at various places on subjects connected with his Manchester addresses, the relation of art to manufacture, and especially the dependence of all great architectural design upon sculpture or painting of organic form. The first of the series was given at the opening of the Architectural Museum at South Kensington, January 13, 1858, entitled The Deteriorative Power of Conventional Art Over Nations in which he showed that naturalism, as opposed to meaningless pattern-making, was always a sign of life. For example, the strength of the Greek, Florentine and Venetian art arose out of the search for truth, not, as is often supposed, out of striving after an ideal of beauty. And, as soon as nature was superseded by recipe, the greatest schools hastened to their fall from which he concluded that modern design should always be founded on natural form rather than upon traditional patterns of the east or of the medievals on february the sixteenth he spoke on the work of iron in nature art and policy at tunbridge wells a subject similar to that of his address to the st martin's school of the year before but amplified to a plea for the use of wrought iron ornament as in the new oxford museum then building and on april the twenty fifth he again addressed st martin's school the oxford museum was an experiment in the true gothic revival 
the architects sir thomas dean and benjamin woodward had allowed their workmen to design parts of the detail such as capitals and spandrels quite in the spirit of ruskin's teaching and the work was accordingly of deep interest to him so far back as april eighteen fifty six he had given an address to the men employed at the museum whom he met on dr ackland's invitation at the workmen's reading-rooms he said that his object was not to give some labouring men the chance of becoming masters of other labouring men and to help the few at the expense of the many but to lead them to those sources of pleasure and power over their own minds and hands that more educated people possess he did not sympathise with the socialism that had been creeping into vogue since eighteen forty eight he thought existing social arrangements good and he agreed with his friends the carlyles who had found that it was only the incapable who could not get work but it was the fault of the wealthy and educated that working people were not better trained it was not the working men's fault at bottom the modern architect used his workmen as a mere tool while the gothic spirit set him free as an original designer to gain not more wages and higher social rank but pleasure and instruction the true happiness that lies in good work well done to explain the design of the oxford museum and to enlist support he wrote two letters to dr ackland may the twenty fifth eighteen fifty eight and january the twentieth eighteen fifty nine which formed part of a small book reporting its aims and progress illustrated with an engraving of one of the workmen's capitals ruskin himself contributed both time and money to the work and his assistance was not unrecognised in eighteen fifty eight honorary studentships i e fellowships were created at christchurch by the commissioner's ordinances at the first election held december the sixth eighteen fifty eight there were chosen for the complement ruskin gladstone sir g cornwall lewis dr sir h w ackland and sir f h gore ousley at the second december the fifteenth eighteen fifty eight were elected henry hallam the earl of stanhope the earl of elgin the marquis of dalhousie and viscount canning parallel with this movement for educating the working class there was the scheme for the improvement of middle-class education which was then going on at oxford the beginning of university extension supported by the reverend f temple later archbishop of canterbury and mr afterwards sir thomas dyke ackland ruskin was heartily for them and in a letter on the subject he tried to show how the teaching of art might be made to work in with the scheme he did not think that in this plan any more than at the working men's college there need be an attempt to teach drawing with a view to forming artists but there were three objects they might hold in view the first to give every student the advantage of the happiness and knowledge which the study of art conveys the next to enforce some knowledge of art amongst those who were likely to become patrons or critics and the last to leave no giotto lost among hill shepherds end of book two chapter nine recording by graham arrowsmith